not Not Quite Right for Us by Speaking Volumes is a podcast series showcasing innovative and diverse writers from underrepresented communities reflecting on experiences of outsiderness and their defiance against it. Not Quite Right for Us is based on an anthology of the same name, which is published by Speaking Volumes and Flipped High Publishing. In this episode, we'll hear The Invitation by Colin Grant, The Boy with No Race by Johnny Pitts, and Vigilantes That Kill by Fergal Hart. Our guide is author, lawyer, trade unionist and activist, Shireen Pandit. I was born in Cape Town in what was then apartheid South Africa in 1958. My ancestors come from at least three of the world's continents. I've been a political activist since childhood, a trade unionist since young adulthood. I qualified and practiced as a lawyer and did some law lecturing. Having attracted the adverse attention of the apartheid authorities, I became a political exile in the UK where I completed a PhD in law, continued my activism, became a parent, and started doing a bit of writing. What we do in our everyday lives, that with which we occupy our time, is often reflected in one way or another in what we write. So those are the connections I draw between work and my writing. My work is not who I am. Who I am is so much more than that. All we are asking for is equality. We are not the dirt, we clean. of Not Quite Right to Us is about work. Black lives have always mattered throughout history, in the sciences, in the arts, in maths, in music, and above all in literature, where we have contributed so much and will continue to matter because we, as a huge part of humanity, still have so much to give and so many stories to tell. Without organizations like Speaking Volumes, we have a hard job telling those stories. Work is often narrowly viewed as that which we do for a living, paid employment. Even worse, this narrowly demarcated work is often regarded as defining who we are, rather than simply being what we do to earn the means to live. For example, when for a variety of reasons I was obliged to stop working in the formal sector, I was constantly asked, but um, what do you do? Or, you mean you are just home all day? It is as though without paid, named, defined work, I was just nothing. The fact that I spent my days researching, writing, raising a child to be a decent human being, engaging in political activity, having a successful relationship, trying to be a good friend and neighbor, doing everything around the house, 
all of this meant nothing. The fact that I kept at bay all the ills of exile from home by doing sports meant absolutely nothing. Yet it is these things, not pay-defined work and making huge profits for bosses, that define who I am and are reflected in what I write. Because what I write has so often not been quite right for publishers. It's either too political or it's too anti-oppression or something's wrong with it. It's just not quite right for people who don't like writing which has political overtones and particularly writing from black exiled writers which has political overtones. The Invitation by Colin Grant The BBC, as a bastion of British culture, maintains and promotes an ennobling idea of public service broadcasting that stretches beyond these shores. My invitation to join the corporation in 1991 marked a milestone for our family. It meant that we'd breached the forbidding fortress which, in the past, we'd only ever been able to stare at in wonderment. You could never have contemplated traversing the invisible moat or cordon sanitaire designed to keep the likes of us most definitely on the outside. It wasn't just that the BBC was, in the parlance of psychologists, a white space. Back then we just have called it a white people ting. It is also a compromised and compromising space. In order to get into it, you'd have to consider the possibility of debasing yourself by entering a world which, as well as soberly, conscientiously and impartially broadcasting world news, also entertained viewers on Saturday nights with The Black and White Minstrel Show, featuring white men with shoe-polished black faces and bowler hats dancing with long-legged white women. This really happened on primetime television all the way up to 1978. A dozen years later, I was among the recruits to the BBC's World Service at Bush House, passing through the portico bearing the inscription to the friendship of English-speaking peoples. First, we were given a tour of the magnificent neoclassical building and then ushered into a room and sat down for the talk. A rite of passage where you submitted to the notion that, as an ambassador for the BBC, you'd never ever bring the corporation into disrepute. And you'd also religiously adhere to the mantra, accuracy, accuracy, accuracy. The BBC High Command clearly admitted without any discomfort that, as the World Service was funded by the Foreign Office, the corporation was a clever tool in the country's soft power strategy. Britain's governments, whomever they were led by, took vicarious pleasure in the BBC and were rewarded in unquantifiable ways for their association with it. Mentioning the World Service abroad in the 1990s gave you smooth entry into the lives of others. It appeared to be a kind of lingua franca or password. Growing up in a West Indian household in Luton in the 1960s, I'd never heard of it. The first time I became aware of the World Service's existence was in a Guardian advert for the radio traineeship I applied for in 1989. The advert suggested that the World Service required more employees of colour in its editorial departments, at least. This was underlined by a little black and white sketch that showed two people, a man in a kinti cloth outfit and a woman in a sari, sat opposite each other at a round desk with a globe in the middle of it, giving off flashes of radio waves. Notwithstanding the cartoon's clumsiness, I was impressed by the corporation's realisation that its whiteness implied that the BBC World Service was stuck in some not-too-distant imperial past. I was glad to meet with their approval at the interview, 
and accepted the invitation to join. Since that invitation from the BBC, I have received five others, the last one encouraging me to take the golden handshake of redundancy and leave through the very doors I came in by. The other four invitations were not so attractive. Two years ago, I left the BBC like a prisoner on a life sentence who had done his time without parole at a maximum security detention centre. That sounds melodramatic, I know. There was no gangster's mole waiting for me on the outside with the engine of a Bentley running, but I did have an overwhelming sense of freedom. During my 25-year career at the BBC, I topped the charts for being the employee with the highest number of disciplinary hearings in the corporation's history. One hearing, you might think, to paraphrase Oscar Wilde, might be regarded as a misfortune, but four smacks of carelessness. The disciplinary hearing process and protocols were rather quaint. A booklet outlining what to expect now that I'd been identified as a suspect accompanied a letter that began, Dear Colin, I'm inviting you to a disciplinary hearing. The use of the word invite seemed ironic, for this was not an invitation you could refuse. What fascinates me is human behaviour, how we treat one another, why we don't seem to learn from our mistakes, not even now, when we face at least two massive attacks on our very existence as a species. A friend once asked me why I don't write any cheerful stories. What he really meant was, why do I write about oppression? Oppression doesn't have any amusing anecdotes. If at first you find something funny, then usually you're laughing through heartbreak and humiliation. There is nothing I write which doesn't have an element of the political in it in one way or another. I would write about racism, about oppression, about exploitation, about gender issues, about climate. Engels said that what distinguishes human beings from animals is work, and work played a great role in our physical and mental evolution to what we are today. Ideally, it is what human beings do in order to get the basic necessities for continued living, such as food and shelter and to be able to enjoy existence, such as entertainment, learning, caring for the environment, and also to contribute to the general good of their fellow human beings and the advancement of humankind. Unfortunately, this is not the way work is seen today. The current dominant system, capitalism, makes most human beings engage in certain arduous activities, which takes most of their waking hours, simply to get the bare means of existence. Many human beings do not have work, or they can't find any. Without work, they are not paid money, and without money, they can't buy food or shelter. At the same time, others are made to work excessively for the basic means, but yet others, very few, are able to do no work at all, and yet enjoy the fruits of the common labours of others. Because of the way in which this last group treats both those who work and those to whom they deny work and the means of subsistence, workers have, over the centuries, banded together into organisations known as trade unions to fight together for rights, such as the right to be better paid, to rest, to have holidays, to take time off when they are sick. And over the decades in different parts of the world, there have been advancements in those rights. But over the decades, in some parts of the world, there has also been a cutting back of those rights. And in some parts of the world, there have never been those rights at all. 
workers just work every hour that they can at any job that they can for money in order to barely live. Vigilantes that kill by Fergal Hart. New York City, rain, preferable to the desert. It was simpler over there. Back home is more complicated. Not as complicated as our boys and girls in spandex would have you believe. More recon is required before you can shoot. So a kid arrested while on the run. Kid must have been 15 or 16. Junior would have been about that age now. Kept running. Wanted to get inside. About to go in when the cop car passed. Get inside. Officer headed towards docks, not precinct. Had to follow. Hated when cops feel the need to become the monster. Unnecessary. My purpose, not theirs. Grab back by door. Followed on foot. Car stopped by warehouse. Two men by door. Kid escorted inside by cop. Climbed shipping containers far enough away not to be seen. Used drone. Idiots had left the window open. Slip drone in. Kid was in a cage with a dozen others. Guard shouted at them. Shut up! Scum! I will kill you! Threat's not empty. Spotted guards dumping bodies into oil barrels. Liquid inside oil barrels dissolves bodies. Good method. Used it myself many times. Cop from earlier was the only one in uniform. Found out later the rest were off duty or retired. Eight guards, ten with two at door, all armed. Retrieve drone, check gun, called 1911. <laughs> Classic. Seven rounds per mag, two mags sufficient. Excuse me, sir, you can't be here. Private property. Bend down to catch breath. One second, just passing through. One came closer. Sir, you really can't, drew gun. Drop the big ones. Rain helped to muffle the sound. Only one came out. What the hell's going on? Dropped him too. They all heard that. Went round side. Used grapple hook to get up to open window. Three were stacked up by the main door. Two hid behind desk. One behind the oil barrel. He had been stuffing bodies into seconds earlier. The cop tried the back door. It was locked. I didn't waste time. Four shots... Two down, reloaded. Five shots, rest down. The cop was slippery. Went inside. Checked bodies for cage key. All had matching tattoos. Made pretty clear they were all fans of old adults' work. Found key. Open cage. Called heroes for hire. Made way home. Good run. Hi Frank, thank you so much for your submission. As you know, all of us over at Vigilantes That Kill are massive fans of your work, so it was a real honour to receive a piece from you. So again, thank you. Unfortunately, in its current form, your piece is not quite right for us. We're simply not sure that it will be appropriate for our readers. You see, we've conducted numerous surveys of our subscribers over the years and have discovered that 78% of our most loyal readers are employed by the various regional and federal law enforcement agencies of our great nation. 
Because of this, we feel that a piece which compares you and them, they really do look up to you. To monsters might not send the right message. An excerpt featuring some of the less desirable elements of our brave police force has similar issues, especially in the current political climate. Everyone has some sort of racial bias anyway, am I right? As such, we would greatly appreciate it if you submitted a different excerpt from your war journal, what an awesome title by the way, one that features bad guys who are, you know, actually bad. Maybe some drug dealers or pimps for example, I'm sure you've put down many of them over the years. We look forward to reading your next submission. Best wishes, Ted Cruz, Deputy Editor, Vigilantes That Kill. Uh, hi Frank, we are mi minutes away from printing our second issue, um, do you have that second submission for us? Because we need it, like yesterday. Best wishes, Ted Cruz, Deputy Editor, Vigilantes That Kill. I think the voices we hear and the histories we tell matter because they, they record where we as a species have been and whether we've moved forward or whether we're going backward, whether we're marking time in our development. I've always wondered when violent conquest takes place, why do the conquerors burn the books of the conquered? The attacks on the libraries of Alexandria and Timbuktu, the burning of the books in Granada, in which so much of the knowledge accumulated over centuries for the benefit of all humankind were contained. And ever since the banning of books which challenge conquest, which challenge oppression, which challenge occupation, what is it about books that conquerors are afraid of? Why does it matter so much that those whom they have conquered knew so much more than they or contributed so much more to the advancement of the human race? A few years ago, I came across Tariq Ali's quartet of books about the meeting of the Christian West and the Muslim world. And simply by telling the stories from a non-Western perspective, those periods in history were radically altered in my Western-educated mind. It wasn't so much that he told a different story as that he told it from a point of view which was not Western-centric. And that made the story completely different. Which brings me to the current war being waged by the most powerful countries in the West on the Muslim world and the use of language and storytelling to alter our perspectives of what is right and what is wrong. These phrases that are tossed about so loosely all these are tossed about and we don't question these things. We just adopt them silently. We are invited over and over again to believe history as it's written by the victors. So the telling of stories from a lot of different perspectives, they can be told, they must be told, they alter the perspective, the single perspective, the dominant perspective, and they can stop us as readers, as watchers, as imbibers of stories from lending tacit or open support to conquest, to occupation, to destruction and oppression. To stop humanity from regressing, from going around in destructive circles, we have to offer stories from as many perspectives as possible so that the whole story of humanity at any one time or on a continuum can be seen. The Boy With No Race by Johnny Pitts. In 2019, my book Afropean Notes from Black Europe was published by Penguin. Though it was broadly well received, a few disgruntled commentators aired grievances as there was some new hipster on the scene who burst out of nowhere and claimed all the glory for the hard work they had secretly been doing behind the scenes for years. So secret, in fact, that it was usually people I'd never heard of who hadn't actually been very active. 
someone has anointed a black intellectual, wrote Henry Louis Gates Jr., be assured that others are busily constructing his tumbrel. I was prepared for this because I'd been guilty of unwarranted misgivings about other younger writers being published when I wasn't. Communities that don't get their fair share of the spotlight can go two ways when appraising their own, supreme pride or vengeful resentment. And with good reason, there's a modicum of truth in the idea that there's only enough space for a few key black success stories in a white media landscape. Every time another black writer gets published, it can feel as though you've been robbed of your portion of an already finite availability of resources. My journey to an audience for Afropean, however, was hard won, taking the best part of 15 years and leaving me in debt because I'd had to self-finance the bulk of my travel and research before anyone would take a chance on me. I'd floated the idea around in various capacities to officialdom, a late-night music show, for instance, playing French hip-hop, German reggae, Swedish soul and so on, when I had a short stint at BBC Radio 1 Extra. I wanted to play Yusuna Dor or Stromae. They wanted me to talk about what Beyoncé wore to the Grammys. I pitched the idea of a trip around Europe meeting with black communities to one publisher who told me it's already been done, referring to Carol Phillips as the European tribe, written around the time I was born. The publisher, suggesting blackness in Europe, was monolithic that it hadn't shifted after three decades in which the geopolitical structure of the continent had been radically transformed. I wrote a treatment for a documentary and offered it to various channels who all told me it was too niche, a common refrain that usually meant too black. This was often said in that oblivious way why middle-class men who don't consider themselves capable of racism say, mate, why are you going on about being black? You're British. Race doesn't matter. By contrast, a producer told a friend of mine after a screen test uh, to present a TV show that he'd given a great audition, but that unfortunately they already had their black presenter. Similarly, when I was whittled down to the final two to co-present Blue Peter with Iowa Kinwalere, one of my best friends since my childhood years, I knocked the screen test out of the park, but they chose a white presenter with much less experience who was sacked little over a year later because of his ineptness and told me I was too similar to Ayo. I'm working class from Sheffield. Aya is upper middle class Nigerian. Clearly, there was only enough space for any one black person at a time. So being black doesn't make a difference anymore. I'm British. Race doesn't matter. Closest I came to getting anything like Afropean off the ground was when a production company expressed interest. After initial period of excitement, they sent back a bastardised treatment of my idea with a new title. The Boy With No Race. A Search For Belonging. Telling the story of black Europeans wasn't enough. The documentary had to have a narrative arc be transfigured into a patronising journey of discovery for white viewers to understand so that it wasn't too niche. I've sold out many times in this media industry to pay the bills, but thankfully this wasn't one of those occasions. You've been listening to Colin Grant, Johnny Pitts and Fergal Hart with Shireen Pandit and Lucy Hanna. Music composed by Dominique Lejeune. Speaking Volumes presents and promotes new and underrepresented voices to diverse audiences. The Not Quite Right For Us anthology celebrates 10 years of Speaking Volumes. It's published by Flipped Eye Publishing and it features 40 international writers. The anthology is available at all good bookshops 
or you can order from FlipDye at www.flipdye.net. For more information about Speaking Volumes, go to www.speakingvolumes.org.uk. The Not Quite Right For Us podcast is produced by Craig Garrett and Shona Hawkes in collaboration with Speaking Volumes. The woman you heard in the soundscape saying, We are not the dirt we clean, is Mildred Simpson and is from a protest she attended while working as a cleaner at the London School of Economics, the LSE. The protest was part of a successful 10-month campaign the cleaners waged to be brought in-house as employees of the LSE, fighting for dignity in pay and conditions, rather than being employed as outsourced contractors. The voices you hear in Vigilantes That Kill are Rex Urbano and Fergal Hart. 